Beth Gardner is an American journalist based right here in London. Her hugely important and critically acclaimed book, Choked, The Age of Air Pollution and Fight for a Cleaner Future, is one of The Guardian's best books of 2019 and described by none other than Arnold Schwarzenegger as an urgent, essential read. Air pollution kills 7 million people every year, causing heart attacks, strokes, cancer, dementia and more. In Choked, Beth Gardner travels the world to tell her story of this modern-day plague, exposing the political decisions and economic forces that have kept so many of us breathing dirty air. In fact, COVID-19 and lockdown has brought air pollution into even sharper focus than ever before. In this fascinating chat, Beth outlines some of the issues we face locally and globally and her hopes for the future. I'm Steve Lazarus, and this is Your London Legacy. I've got a special offer for you. Regular listeners to the podcast will know that at the end of each interview, we ask our guests to tell us one or two of their favorite places in London that is personal to them and perhaps not everybody knows about. Well, I've now compiled for you 60 of my guests' favorite places in London, and you can get this unique brochure 100% free. Alongside each guest recommendation is a brief quote explaining why they love the place, a lovely picture of it, plus links to the venue and the podcast episode itself so you can check it out in your own time. It's completely free and all you have to do is go to www.yourlondonlegacy.com on the homepage and click on the red button where it says guests favourite places in London. Click here for your free copy. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did creating it for you. Keep listening. Best wishes and keep safe. Steve. So I'm delighted to welcome onto the podcast today, Your London Legacy, Beth Gardner. Uh, Beth um, is an American journalist based here in London, um, whose recent book, who I think was published last year, is that correct? Beth is called Choked. Let's give it its full title, Choked, The Age of Air Pollution and the Fight for a Cleaner Future. Great book. We'll come on and going to speak about that in some, some more detail very shortly. It's great to have you on the podcast. And I think the, the topic of your book about pollution in its widest sense is more appropriate today probably than it's ever been and I'm guessing when you wrote the book which was over a period of a few years I believe leading up to publication you never considered COVID sort of COVID wasn't on the horizon in the back then um, was it? No I was not imagining a global pandemic that would lock no. us all in our houses for months on end um, no. but you're right that that COVID and this this whole catastrophe that we're experiencing has really helped bring air pollution very much to the fore, both for good and for ill, uh, which we can talk about a little further. Yeah. And illness. I mean, it absolutely freaks me out when I read the level of illness and disease and premature death, both in normal lifespan and in prem babies as well. I mean, it's just absolutely frightening. The the horrendous things that can befall people as a result of air, air pollution. And whilst I've, uh, we'll come on to your book because it's divided into into neat chapters with wonderful personal stories as well as science based fact as well. I I always knew London was not the cleanest air, but it never dawned on me quite how crappy it was until I read your the chapter in there. Yeah. It it shocked me too, both how bad our air is here in London and how much, like you said, how much illness and death sort of invisibly is caused by air pollution. And I think that that shock, that personal experience of, of learning that and realizing that I've been living here for going on 20 years now, breathing this stuff, that's what brought me to write a book. Um, mm. 
you know, I, I'm a journalist, I'm a writer. And, and so I guess when I get upset about something, that's my kind of outlet, you know, I'm not, I'm not out like um, marching in the streets or circulating petitions or something, but I, I, I wanted to learn about this issue and, and share what I learned with other people in a, in a way that was, you know, really accessible and readable. And that's kind of, I don't know, I guess I sort of feel like that's what I can do about it. That's that's what mm. I know how to do. And obviously it is it is relevant for people far beyond London. This is really a global issue. Oh, but absolutely. you know, we experience it locally. We experience it where we live. And for me, that's here in London. Mm, absolutely. So let's just dig a bit into in how you got into well journalism for a start. I mean, because You've lived in London for what, 10 going years on, now, is it? No, it's going on no. 20. Going to be 20. 20 I beg your pardon, 20 year. years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, wow. moved so here right after the turn of the millennium. Do you consider yourself a fully fledged Londoner? I do, Londoner? yeah. Do? I mean, yeah. I, consi- I consider myself a Brit and an American because, uh, you know, my fam- my parents, my sister, my extended family is still over there. But I've, I've, you know, obviously made my life here. My husband's British. And yeah, I've been a Londoner for 20 yeah. years, North London. Wow. Well, you're not the first American we've had on the podcast who calls calls themselves a <laughs> London. We've had we've had at least two before. A wonderful chap called Lou Stein, creative director at Chicken Shed Theatre. Uh, Jason Sandy, who is is one of the best mudlarkers on the on the Thames. You'll find is also <laughs> a, 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 yeah. a, a London based architect. So, um, you know, welcome, a belated welcome to London. Anyway, thank, good, good, thank you. Good to I have, mean, good like to... like New York, where I lived before I came here. I think London's. To me, greatness comes from the fact that you can be from anywhere and be a Londoner, you know, and that that vibrancy and that diversity. That's what I love about this place. Yeah. So how did you get into journalism, first off? Oh, I was on the high school newspaper. I was on my university newspaper. I've always loved writing. Which university was that? Yale University. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the Yale Daily News. I spent a lot of time there in my (laughs) late teens, early 20s, I guess. Um, kind of, you know, learning what it was all about. I I always loved writing and I always really was fascinated by news. I love, you know, I was a big, always consumer of newspapers, news magazines in those days. And I really was just interested in kind of issues, you know, environmental issues, but all kinds of other stuff too, um, social issues, politics, immigration, poverty, and, and journalism. You know, it just allows you to, in some ways, it's good for people with short attention spans because you can sort of hop from topic to topic and learn about something new and then try to explain it to readers. Um, I spent a lot of years at the Associated Press, the news agency. I was with them in in New York. And then uh, my boyfriend, then, then boyfriend, now husband, is British. And he got a job over here and I moved with AP. And uh, I, I left that job in uh, 2006, but I've stayed in London, been freelancing, freelance journalism, covering all kinds of issues. And I've really gradually and, and you know, increasingly sort of exclusively over the last 10 or so years, really focused on kind of climate change and environmental stories, but in environment, not in an abstract sense of, you know, kind of polar bears and parts per million of carbon dioxide, but, you know, the, the environment affects us as as humans and to me this air pollution story which you know as you said i spent several years traveling around the world reporting about is a, to me it's a health story more than an environment story and you know those two things obviously overlap very much 
So when did it dawn on you that the, the, the seriousness of the topic of air pollution? Because I'm I, I just looking down some of the other things you've written about or got involved with. Um, and I, I can't let you get away without talking about your time on Tony Blair's plane traveling. Oh, around. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and also going to Indonesia to report on the post tsunami event as well. Yeah, well, well, that was with the Associated Press. And I was for a while covering um, British politics for the AP. So that's sort of you know, a, a news agency that that syndicates articles to newspapers and, and TV and radio and stuff uh, all around the world. So you were sort embedded, of covering, embedded with his uh, entourage, right? Yeah, so it's sort of covering British politics for people in other countries. And yeah, that was in the, uh, I guess, around 2005, 2006. And I spent some time in, in Downing Street and in Parliament, the House of Commons. It was great. And I got to do a few trips on, they called it Blair Force One. It was a, I guess, like a rented BA plane. I saw Andrew Marr in his pajamas. Oh, did you? Lucky um, yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> sat next to him. Yeah, that was, uh, I think, an overnight flight home from uh, Washington, D.C. So I did a few trips with with Blair, kind of covering what he was doing. One was to Washington. He had a press conference with George Bush, was, I think, to do with Iraq. Did a trip to China and India. But yeah, that was that was fun. Very, Very exciting. Stuff, exciting. Yeah. You really feel like you kind of have the, the inside track. And then you leave a job like that and, you know, you can't do any stuff like that anymore <laughs> no, no, you, don't, you don't get access to the the big politicians and the big names unless you're working for a big name outlet so i've been freelancing more recently but covering a story like the tsunami in indonesia that, yeah that, that is i'm guessing that's more where your heart is on these big sort of um eco style yeah i mean that was that was an amazing experience a, a very just a very big experience, I guess, and a little bit overwhelming. I had, funnily enough, I had spent time in Indonesia earlier on. I spent a year teaching English there after I finished university. So when this, um, you know, tragedy happened in, was at the end of 2003, I think, um, I was there in January of 2004 or five, you know, I, I think it was upwards of 100,000 people were, were killed oh. just in Indonesia and Aceh by this yeah. huge wave and this terrible earthquake. But they, you know, they needed people to go and and help cover it and tell the stories. And I had I had been in Indonesia and I knew a little bit of the language, and so I was there for I forget three or four weeks, just going around interviewing people and trying to sort of you know convey a sense to the outside world of of what had happened and what the impact was and what was being done. There was a tremendous aid operation. I went on a U.S. military helicopter that was bringing supplies to. There were some. Uh, villages that had been kind of cut off, the roads had been washed out. Um, you know, but it was extraordinary. I mean, there were there were huge like cargo ships overturned on dry land, like hundreds and hundreds of meters away from the coast that had just been brought in by this enormous wave. So yeah, it was pretty overwhelming, but you know, sort of journalistically very engaging and, and stimulating, I guess, in a weird way too. You know, that's what we do as journalists, right? You kind of try to tell these stories in these moments of crisis so um yeah, yeah it was fascinating so i was saying so how, how did you then get into the the pollution well, arena as it were it, how, how did that become an interest to you it's funny you know it always bothered me from the from the moment i, I moved to london and i had lived in new york before so it's not like i was coming from i was going to say because new york is not right and imagined to be the cleanest place in the world is it well it's got lots of traffic 
you know, lots of cars and trucks and buses, just like London does. Uh But interestingly, and it took me many, many, many years to understand this um, and to realize it, the air there is much cleaner than London's. And in general, the air in the U.S., and in Europe is significantly, uh, sorry, the air in the US is significantly cleaner than in the UK and Europe. But I didn't know that back in 2001, when I first lived here, I just knew that I would go outside, you know, go out for a walk, go to buy a coffee or sandwich from my office or, you know, whatever. And there, there was just always seemed to me this kind of smell, this like thickness in the air and almost like you can kind of taste it, you know, you mm. can smell it. And I noticed if I was walking on out on the street, at, even not like I'm not talking about like, you know, heavy traffic central London, but just sort of any, you know, little local high street or whatever. And I, I would find I would get like a little bit of almost a, a headache of a light, mild headache or feel a little bit lightheaded. Mm-hmm. It just always bothered me. And no one ever talked about it. It didn't seem to kind of be a thing. You know, obviously, I knew sort of historically that London had these, you know, back in the 50s, maybe the, these pea soup fogs and the, the great smog of light. Sure, I knew all that. But, yeah. you know, that didn't seem very relevant to 2000, whatever. So uh, eventually, I kind of just put it out of my mind. And I thought, OK, well, you know, I guess it's just me. I never noticed that in New York. They have traffic, too. But you know, this must not be an issue because if it was a problem, you know, I'd certainly be reading about it in the in the paper or whatever. And then many years later, um, around 2012, I was already freelance and I was working on a story for the International Herald Tribune, which was to do with the Olympics, then sort of soon to arrive in London Olympics. And, and it touched on the issue of air quality vis-a-vis the athletes. And in in the course of researching that, you know, I sat down at my computer and I started Googling air quality, air pollution in London. And you know what? It took about five minutes of reading the the science of of air pollution and its impact on health and and how much of it there is here in London. Took about five minutes of reading that for my jaw to absolutely hit the floor because it's really shocking. Um, And this is you know, I I mentioned earlier this shock that the book eventually grew out of. This was the kind of the moment when I started reading. And, you know, what you realize if you if you spend even just a few minutes looking at the science of air pollution is how powerfully it affects our bodies. So first there are these death estimates of how how many people die every year from air pollution. In the UK, it's about uh, 50,000. The latest number for London is as many as 9,000 Londoners every year may die prematurely from the effects of air pollution. Well, your chapter in your book has a a specific number. In fact, the title of the chapter is 9416. Yeah, that's the little little teaser into the chapter, which is the specific number that they've generated. Of Londoners who die every single year. Now, I'm sure that you don't know, and nor do I know anyone who's died of air pollution, so or who we think of as having died from air pollution. So we kind of don't think of it globally. The number is 7 million people every year die early. Staggering. Yeah, it is staggering. And then the other thing that shocked me about it was, you know, I think I would have been very ready to believe that, you know, dirty air was causing causing asthma, causing, you know maybe bronchitis, maybe even lung cancer, breathing problems, right? That kind of 
makes sense. Yeah, but they're, they're what, the obvious ones. Right. And, you know, that's true. It, it does cause those things, uh, of course. But what kind of blew me away was how many other health problems are also caused by air pollution. So when the 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 levels of pollution in a place go up, you're breathing this stuff over, you know, years and years of your life, levels of heart attacks go up, the rates of strokes go up, premature birth, you know, a whole list of different kinds of cancer go up along with air pollution, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, diabetes, obesity, you know, all these things I never would have connected to air pollution. Actually, there's a huge body of science and scientific evidence that tells us that they they are very much connected to air pollution. So, you know, when I read that, I, I didn't, it wasn't like I immediately decided I'm going to write a book on this, but I just felt like, wow, that is huge, you know? And uh, obviously it upset me personally as an individual, and I, I'd had a daughter by then, so I, you know, worried for her health as well. And, and children are disproportionately affected. So are older people, you know, and it really made me feel like, oh, wow, it wasn't just me. You know, that wasn't just my imagination kind of since I no, lived in London. You've reminded me. Yeah. Well, I, I used to share an office many years ago, back in the early 90s, I'm guessing, with, with a colleague, a work colleague. And we used to go into from we were in North London, they used to go into town for appointments. Yeah. And so either the train or the bus or whatever, and then come back. And he always used to say to me, and it sounds disgusting, but he used to blow his nose or, or you know, put a tissue in his ear. Yeah. All this black, black, gunky, sooty stuff used to sort of come out. Yeah. And he used to say, look at this crap. There's that. Yeah. We used, we used to sort of think it was sort of vaguely amusing that London is just, right. you know, it's just dirty air, but we never thought of it as pollutants likely to cause us any injury. Right, exactly. It, it, it did have this sort of jokiness about it. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm sure I heard people in the first few years I lived here say, oh, yeah, living in London will take years off your life. But, you know, I did not seriously consider that it was raising my risk of getting Alzheimer's or, you know, giving birth prematurely or, you know, get, getting any one of these number of diseases. So, yeah, so it, it definitely made me feel like, oh, wow, you know, I wasn't just imagining that this really is a problem. And it also, you know, journalistically, I think I felt like this is a really big story. You know, why why am I not reading about this on the, on the front page of the paper? Why am I not hearing this in, in the news every day? You know, if anything else was killing 9,000 Londoners a year or 7 million people around the world, you know, surely we'd be talking about it all the time and you know yeah not... well, there's a fantastic analogy i think of it was in, course. in, in, in yeah. the book if you see someone run over in oh, the street you right, know, splat yeah. under, under a bus i thought you were going to say covid yeah <laughs> well, well yeah we'll come on yeah. to covid but i mean if you see a, something visceral as that someone being run over in a by a bus and there are deaths by buses yeah. in london transport on a regular basis that sticks with you for but life this is, right you'll never forget for, that for life but this is something which is going on quietly in the background and we're living with it. And we don't yeah. talk about it and we don't see it, do we? So that's Yeah, well, you don't see it because in any individual case, you know, if I have a heart attack tomorrow, you know, no doctor would be able to say, oh, it's because you've been breathing diesel fumes in London for 20 years or, you know, you grew up in a polluted neighborhood or whatever. But on what they call a population level, a large group of people, you know, they the scientists can actually say, you know, if air pollution goes up by this much, then the the rate of heart attacks or whatever will go up by this much or and the rate of indeed of death of premature death. So, you know, I guess I felt as a as a journalist, that's my job, really, that our job as as reporters is to try to 
cast light on things that are hard to see and help people to perceive them. So, What did you find out in London then that was uh, causing so many problems? You mentioned the word diesel. Yeah. Well, so that the, the diesel is a really important part of the story. But to my mind, the, the true cause is bigger than a particular fuel. So yeah, diesel versus petrol. I think a lot of people are pretty well aware now that diesel is a dirtier fuel. It causes more air pollution. It was promoted tragically in retrospect. Heavily promoted. Yeah. I remember looking for Absolutely. first company cars years ago, diesel, tax brakes, yep. longer mileage. Not just in the UK, but other European countries as well. It was promoted as a a climate solution, not not sort of the ultimate solution, but a you know an incremental improvement because diesel is a little bit more efficient. You get about 15, 18% better mileage with diesel. So, you know, if you're burning less fuel per mile, then that is lower carbon dioxide emissions. Sadly, that benefit did not really pan out because the diesels got bigger and heavier. And the petrol cars have gotten more and more efficient over the years. So we didn't really get a carbon benefit, a climate benefit. But what we did get was a health disaster, which a lot of people blame on that decision to incentivize diesel, to encourage people to buy diesel. And certainly that was a terrible mistake. But the bigger problem is that the car companies cheated. So there are actually rules, European rules, which the UK up until you know the end of this year is, is a part of these emissions rules. There are regulations that say not just how much carbon, but how much of all this other stuff, nitrogen dioxide is the name of the, the biggest pollutant that's associated with diesel. There are rules of how much you're allowed to emit if you're a car manufacturer. And what we learned a few years ago, and unfortunately, and really shockingly, it's still happening today is that these big car manufacturers, Volkswagen, obviously, but many others as well, were breaking the rules. Um, so they were selling diesel cars that were emitting, you know, not a little bit over the legal limit of nitrogen dioxide, but 8, 10, 12, 15 times more nitrogen dioxide, it's often called NOx, than is legally allowed. So yes, it was a mistake to encourage people to buy diesels, but if the diesels had, if the companies had followed the rules, then we wouldn't be in this mess today. In other words, if they had obeyed the law as it was written. And so it took me a long time to understand that, though. And but just it, to clarify yeah. that point, these are yeah. major car manufacturers who yep. are ostensibly pretending to the to the market, the global market, right. and you and I, the consumer, that their cars met all these rigid safety exactly. pollution standards. And yet, Eventually, when they were finally tested within a on the road, yep. as opposed to in uh, uh, um, I don't know, like a, a fixed a lab, environment yeah. in the uh -huh. in lab right. lab environment, it was demonstrably shown to be blatantly lying. That, right, that, and that not they they, not they, by they rigged, they rigged it exactly. They? Not by it wasn't an accidental, you know, overshoot. It was very very intentional cheating, as as was demonstrated, you know, legally, um, and they've gotten into a lot of trouble for it more interestingly in the US than here in the UK and Europe but the the companies were cheating they've not been forced to clean up so in fact there's still 50 million diesels on the road across Europe 8 million of them here in the UK that are emitting three or more times the legal limit of 
nitrogen dioxide. That's disgraceful. Yeah. And then, you know, so this was like sort of a gradual process for me in coming to understand this. Why is the air so bad here in London? So we have these rules. There's the diesel cheating scandal. And the the other piece of that that you have to ask yourself is, okay, well, I mean, I guess we can all understand why a big company, you know, if you're cynical enough, you, you can see why they would cheat, right? It saves them money because it costs money to make a diesel that meets the rules. It costs more than to make a diesel that doesn't meet the rules. But then you have to ask yourself, well, you know, who's supposed to be enforcing these regulations? You know, who allowed the companies to get away with this? And so then you you have to look and see that, that governments ac- across Europe, including here in Britain, allowed the companies to cheat. They failed to enforce these rules, which are meant to protect all of our health. You know, you and I can't force a, a multi-billion dollar international company like Volkswagen to, to make a car that, you know, follows legal pollution limits. We we buy a car and we presume that it and that it you know, is compliant with all the the rules that are relevant to it. But that wasn't the case. The companies were cheating. The governments weren't stopping them. And really interestingly, what what happened is that Dieselgate, this VW cheating scandal, they got caught in America, where there are very, very few diesels on the roads for various reasons. Americans just don't like diesel and, you know, we don't care about mileage or fuel. We've got these huge gas guzzlers. But, you know, as, a, as an American, certainly I would never have, uh, you know, we're, we're not used to thinking of ourselves as kind of out ahead of the curve in front of Europe in, when it comes to anything to do with the environment. And, you know, generally speaking, we are not. But in fact, it turns out that when it when it comes to clean air, the U.S. has really been pretty successful. And I'm speaking historically over the past 50 years, not over not, not you know, the period of the, the Trump administration. <laughs> Pre-Trump. Certainly, we're, we're going backwards the last three or four years. But, but Europe and the U.K. have done a very poor job of enforcing, you know, there's all kinds of nice rules written on, on the books, but the the car companies say, is it because VW, the regulatory bodies don't have the teeth or is it because they just don't they don't have the capacity the wherewithal to enforce anything well a little bit of both but it, not by accident you know they've not been given the teeth and there's sort of a, an enforcement system that's been set up that's kind of built to to fail basically built it's fail. filled with loopholes and it's you know probably partly to do with the political power of car companies like Volkswagen but you know, there's plenty of corporate power over in the U.S. as well. But um, over the years, the Environmental Protection Agency, which is a sort of more central, centralized kind of you know empowered body with lots of you know scientists and technical experts on staff, they've done a better job of of enforcing the rules. So when this diesel cheating thing happened, VW and the other companies actually got caught over in the U.S even though much more cheating was happening here because there's way more diesels on the roads in Britain and Europe. And in America, VW was fined billions of dollars, criminally convicted, forced to recall vehicles that didn't comply with the emissions limits and to, to pay compensation to people who had bought those cars. Whereas in Europe, that really has not happened. The car companies have been away able, they've been allowed to get away with these sort of cheap software tweaks where they, you know, change the software on the car. It doesn't really clean up the pollution. And 
what what we've seen happen as you know over recent years i think people in across britain and europe have kind of woken up to this mess that we're in with with air pollution is that we've seen cities and london for sure is one of them kind of try to solve it on their own because there hasn't really been sufficient action at the national level or the european level so you're seeing cities like london impose you know restrictions on these cheating diesels things like the ultra low emission charge, which, you know, those things will help, but it would be so much more effective to do it at a a higher level. Uh, You know, a mayor or a local council, they don't have the power to to make VW clean up their act or any or any other car company. And so what what London does and, and what any other city does, it ends up putting the cost onto the individual drivers, you know, people who who really bought their cars and in good faith. It's not their fault. You know, if you own a, a diesel that's over the limit, it's not your fault, right? You you bought it, assuming that the company was following the law. Let's take a very quick break just to remind you, if you love the show and would like to get involved, grab some cool stuff, get shout outs on the show, have us create your very own London Legacy show, or you meet up with us in London for a coffee or something stronger. Just head over to www.patreon.com forward slash your London legacy. Okay, let's carry on with the show. But there are other things I think the mayor is doing, restricting there won't be any new diesel taxes being built going forward. And I think London buses as well, moving to electric, aren't they? So, yes. And also the diesel taxes, you say. Yes, definitely. And, you know, and those things are really important. But uh, you know, a city doesn't have the the powers or the resources to bring to bear on this problem the way that it, that the national government does. So, you know, if we saw more action at the national level, it wouldn't be left to you know individual lo- kind of local governments in London and in Manchester and in Birmingham. You know, every city has to kind of reinvent the wheel and do it on their own. If it was if it was more coordinated at the national level, Which you'd see ironic, things improving but, much more yeah. quickly. Yeah. Because in in London, what is it nine? As you say, what was the figure? Nine thousand people die yeah. die from polluted pollution related yeah. diseases, and yet you compare that to deaths from COVID. Yeah, uh, it's in London is about four thousand, I think, presently associated deaths. Yeah. If you extrapolate that out over the course of the year, you can probably guess that pollution related deaths will exceed that of COVID. Yeah, and, it's and so- yet it's not it's not treated as a serious. As right. serious. It's so interesting. And I mean, of course, this pandemic is horrific and I would never mm. want to minimize it in any way. Sure. Um, you know, it's it's been devastating mm. everywhere. But it is also true that when you are used to seeing the numbers associated with illness and death from air pollution, they they dwarf the, the numbers from COVID, you know, seven million deaths globally every single, you know, year after year after year from dirty air you know covid as awful as it is 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 nowhere near that you know but it's a it's sort of a, a a slower motion catastrophe right and you know like we talked about it's kind of invisible but it's also true that these things are are really intersecting these two problems covid and and air pollution you know there's been a lot of research and and if you know anything about air pollution it's just you didn't even need to read the studies it's absolutely logical that exposure to air pollution is making COVID worse. Because if you live in a place like London, you know, where people have been breathing dirty air for years, we know from all the science that already exists that, you know, there's going to be more people with heart conditions, more people with cancer, 
you know, more people with diabetes because of all the dirty air we're breathing. We, we've been breathing for years, and you know, COVID just maps right on top of that because those people are obviously the the most vulnerable to having. A well, COVID really is a respiratory. I'm not a doctor, COVID. but it's a respiratory based Absolutely. illness, isn't it? That affects the lungs. Yeah. And pollution so, is the first thing it attacks the lungs. Right. So, you know, and, and pollution attacks your whole body. So, mm. you know, the more pollution there is in a place, the more people you're going to have with all these pre-existing conditions that make them vulnerable. And there also seems to be this kind of immune thing going on, too, where breathing air pollution causes inflammation in your, your lungs and your airways um, and that makes you more vulnerable to a respiratory virus and having a severe experience of it. And it weakens your immune system, breathing all that dirty air. So it's put us in a, a very vulnerable position. And there's even actually some science, all this, although this is less certain, I think, which suggests that the virus can actually bond with air pollution particles mm. in the air. And that enables it to stay airborne for longer it enables it to penetrate deeper into your body because it, you know, the virus attaches to like a little bit of of weight and solidity. So that there are a lot of, um, you know, really frightening connections. But I, I spoke to one scientist in Italy who's been doing some research on this, and you know, she said it's funny that people sort of ignore all the the health impacts of air pollution. But the minute that air pollution is exacerbating, you know, this other problem, COVID you know, everyone's suddenly very interested in that. So I guess in a way, if COVID can help us to see the the impacts that air pollution has been having, you know. It'll be interesting to see because one of the ironies of COVID is that air pollution has obviously dropped dramatically over the last three to four months. Well, people, it did. Well, or, or it, it did until yeah. it started to be released, but then people were noticing clearer skies they could see the mountains you know venice all yeah. of a sudden the canals were you could see fish swimming around in the canals yeah. all this sort of stuff yeah it's now lock lockdown is being released we're back yeah. into the community and now gradually pollution levels are coming out i'd be interested it'd be interesting to see if there's any time lag in deaths not related to pollution if you see what i mean coming through you yeah. know other than covid of course well it's turning out that that all around the world, the, this lockdown period, which we've now come out of, is turning out to have produced a lot of very, very useful data for air quality scientists. Um, and they're studying, you know, what changed in the air and what didn't mm. when everybody was confined to their home. And, and they hope that that may, you know, help to get even a finer grain understanding of what the biggest sources of pollution are and what helps to you know, obviously, no no one thinks that a lockdown is a is a good way to no no, but it's the biggest natural quality. experiment ever, <laughs> ever yeah, to hit the planet. I guess it really is. It's funny, you know, when when we were in the really the height of lockdown, I I don't even know how many people said to me or sent me articles about you know oh the air quality is the pollute at least you know at least there's a silver lining at least this is good quotes good for the environment or you know, at least we have clean air now. And I just, um, I, I really hated that. I, I felt like um, it, it really rubbed me the wrong way. First of all, you know, I don't see a silver lining in a, a pandemic that is, you know, killing people, terrifying people, devastating the economy. I would not say, oh, well, there's an environmental upside. Not to a that. solution, is it? Obviously, obviously not. But also, it, it just seemed to me like, well, you know, of course, if if everyone parks their cars and no one's going anywhere, then yeah, of course, if you live in a place where a lot of pollution comes from cars, then yeah, that's going to stop. 
But it just seemed equally obvious that that pollution would come right back as soon as the lockdown ended. And, and in fact, that is exactly what's happened. And the same thing with carbon emissions globally, which went down during lockdowns and are, are now, you know, right back where we started, if, if not greater. But I do think actually, in retrospect, that I underestimated the, the way that it really hit people to have that experience of cleaner air. And, and to know what it feels like to walk or cycle down a street in London and not have that thickness in the air and not have that, you know, noise or that feeling that you might get hit. You know, if you st- take one wrong step, you, you could be plowed over by somebody speeding, you know, past or speeding over you. So it was you. a contribution of many factors, wasn't it? It wasn't well, we, just you know, the pollution, we ex- the we experienced noise. We experienced what, what London can be like without cars or without so many cars. I mean, I don't know about you, but during during the lockdown, when we were allowed out once a day for exercise, I did a lot of cycling and I rode into the center of town. I mean, I went to Parliament Square. I rode down Embankment. I rode through Trafalgar Square and, and Oxford Circus. I mean, when they were absolutely dead and, and empty and you know, I I missed the people. It was it was awful to see those places so deserted for that reason. But I didn't miss the cars, and you know, certainly, you know, a lockdown and a and a terrible disease is not the way to achieve a a city that is is not dominated by cars. But I think it it gives us something to think about, and it and it we we do give so much space. And so much kind of primacy, not just in London, but cities all around the world to to cars. And, you know, it has a, a huge negative impact on our quality of life. And I, I've been to other places that, you know, give more primacy to pedestrians or to bicycles. And, you know, it's it's a totally different kind of quality of, of life, you know, very much including better air quality, but also, you know, like I said, less noise and more kind of space to to walk and have a community. And so it, it was well, a couple of people who I interviewed for various articles I wrote about this said to me, you know, maybe we can learn something from this tragedy and, you know, well, find a way to make our so. Otherwise, it's a, it's, a, it's a big waste, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Time and, uh, and sacrifice for many people as well. Yeah. Let's step outside of London because you, you traveled widely, didn't you, for your... Yeah. Um, your investigations into mm-hmm. uh, the writing of the book and, and some of the obvious play i say obvious but some of what you found wasn't so obvious i mean going into poland for example yeah and some of the the people living and heating their premises and their huts and their properties by coal and feeling secure in having a, a load of coal in their basement because that's yeah. how they you know how they feel safe that they can heat their property in the in the middle of winter Tell us a little bit about some of the stories that you came across in places like Poland and like um, Delhi, some yeah. of these poorer places. Because London is obviously a very well, you know, one of the yeah. wealthiest countries in, on the planet. Well, po- Poland was so interesting. And the reason I went there is that it's one of the most coal-dependent countries in Europe. And coal is obviously, you know, a, a huge contributor, not just to climate change, but to air pollution and, and the negative health impacts. So I, I wanted to go there and kind of see up close what that looks like, what the effects are on people's lives and their health, and, you know, what it what it might mean to, to move to something cleaner and healthier. Um, and in Poland, there's a tremendous amount of uh, the electricity that comes from coal. So that's, you know, coal that's burned in these huge power plants. But there are also um, a lot of people, I think something like half the country 
burns coal at home in, in a stove or a furnace of some sort for heat. And that's even worse for from a pollution perspective, because, you know, at least in a big power plant, you have kind of, you know, scrubbers in the smokestacks and there's a degree of regulation of, of the smoke. But at home, people are just burning, you know, very low grade, cheap coal in these low tech stoves. And, and it's just an absolutely choking smoke in, in some towns that comes out of every, um, every smokestack and uh, I mean, every chimney. Um, and I, I went to Krakow. Uh, that was where I started because, um, you know, I wanted to focus on on sort of some stories of change and and hope and positive action too. And Krakow is is the first, and I believe still the only city in Poland um, to ban this home burning of coal in these these low tech stoves at home uh people are you know hooking up now to gas and electricity and, and other forms of heat um and that was a real victory of of grassroots you know activism parents and and old older people you know marching and petitioning and and getting journalists to to write about it um and um, you know, it was really inspiring to see that because one thing that I, that I learned everywhere I went, and this is true in in China and America and, and India, I, I went to Berlin as well, um, is that th- this is not an impossible problem. You know, air pollution really is very fixable, and the other thing is that every bit of improvement that you get in air quality, you know, every you know sort of degree to which you can get VW to to clean up their cars, right? Or you can get people to stop burning, for example, wood uh, logs in their in their stoves at home. That's a big problem here in, in London and, and other wealthy cities. You know, every degree of improvement you can get, literally you're saving people's lives. You're preventing heart attacks and, you know, cases of Alzheimer's and all these other things. So to me, you know, in these environmental kind of topics can feel so kind of despair inducing, I think, for a lot of people. But to me, that is so hopeful. It's not impossible if you can even, you know, we were talking about Sadiq Khan and the ultra low emission zone. It's not perfect, right? But it's improving. It's reduced, I think, um, nitrogen dioxide by something like 30% or 40%, I can't remember, in central London. Like literally, you know, you'll never know who they are, but that will save people's lives. It will prevent, you know, babies being born early and and all these other problems. So that's very hopeful. And I saw that in Krakow and I saw it in, you know, uh, America where I told the story of of the Clean Air Act. It's been a very powerful, almost 50-year-old now law there that's helped to, you know, who thinks of America as being an, an environmental success story? No, no one, no one right? It came, but, as, it came as a shock to me. Yeah. It but, but and to, I'm a bit, bit tainted by the last few years, I guess. Yes, absolutely. And, and and it came as a shock to me too. But, you know, if if the US can can do this with all the crazy politics there and everything can be, get, you know, still 100,000 Americans dying a year of air pollution, it's a long way to go. But, uh, you know, it's literally has saved millions of American lives. This Clean Air Act passed back in 1970, saved trillions of dollars. And by the way, the benefits outweigh the costs by dozens of times when you start spending money on cleaner air. And even in even in China, when you you reported on your travels to China, you said there's some very positive work going on there in transforming to, you know, the, the, the solar farms and the turbine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, 
I guess the update is we don't know what the impact of COVID is going to be. And there is some concern that it's going to kind of be a dirty recovery in, in China and, and potentially elsewhere, too. The government may throw a lot of money at, you know, some of these really heavy smokestack industries, steel manufacturing and thing like, things like that, just to rev the economy up. Mm. But more, more broadly speaking, over recent years, China has made tremendous progress. They still have a huge um, air pollution problem. But since 2010, uh, the particle pollution levels in, in Beijing have come down by 60%. I mean, that is tremendous. And, you know, again, we'll have saved so many hundreds of thousands of lives, if if not millions. Um, so to me, that's that's pretty hopeful and that's pretty inspiring. So that's why I, I, you know, I didn't want to write a book where you just go around the world and, you know, write about uh, kids in different places having asthma attacks, right? That There's so much more to, to tell. No, it's, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful book in many, many respects because it's storytelling, which is is wonderful. And you're, you're a consummate storyteller as well, but you, you get Thank down you. and tell people's at the grassroots, right, right down to sort of village level if you, you can put it that way you know in little indian villages yeah right down and dirty where they're, they're burning cow dung as yeah fuel. You're, well, you're telling those personal stories but you're also telling the positive things that are starting to happen around the world yeah and you know it's funny i mean i said at the beginning that i really felt you know when i started to read some of the science that this was such an important and under kind of undercovered issue danger um and I, I felt really strongly from pretty early on that, you know, air pollution is important enough to be a book, right? You know, 7 million people die a year. That's very, that's pretty important. But I did not know if it could be interesting enough to be a book because um, those two are not the same thing, right? I mean, if it's just, you know, sort of the same thing over and over again, you know, people getting sick and coughing or whatever and different parts of the world, you know, who would read that? But what I what I started to learn really quickly, um, it seemed like wherever I went, air pollution was intersecting with, you know, just the biggest issues that we are grappling with in our societies right now, as we were talking about, it's intersecting with this terrible pandemic. But it, in, it intersects with economic inequality. It intersects with questions of racial justice in a very big way. Sure. It intersects with, you know, issues of corporate abuse and obviously with climate change yeah. in China, you know, it intersects with questions around um, free expression and, and censorship. Everything, by right. Power, yeah. politics, culture. Yeah. So, you know, that was when I, wealth, yeah. that was when I started to realize that it, it could maybe be interesting enough to be a book that people would hopefully want to read. So you're quite positive. I mean, obviously there's a lot of negative stuff in here, but in the book, but that's historic going forward you 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 strike a positive note at the end so how do you yeah. think this is going to pan out setting covid to one side for the moment yeah well i mean it's hard to say and i i'm you know not a future predictor um it's funny there was one review of the book and the reviewer wrote that he couldn't tell if i was pessimistic optimistic or just realistic <laughs> and <laughs> realistic, i laughed i would say yeah and i laughed when i read that because i i i don't know which one i am either um you know, I guess maybe it depends on the day. I mean, you know, it's it's hard to look at what's happening in so much of the world right now and, and feel optimistic. I mean, certainly when it comes to climate change, we can see that we're heading pretty fast in, in the wrong direction. Um, you know, and in air pollution, you know, we're still breathing terrible air here in London. You know, it, it, it shouldn't be that way. Um, but, you know, like I said, I, I did 
come to understand that these problems are not impossible. They're not unsolvable, neither climate change nor air pollution. Um, you know, it, it comes down to, I think, power and money and political will, whether we, whether we, you know, require that our governments deal with this, whether that's in the UK or the US or China or anywhere else. And time. I mean, all these things take generations. They don't happen overnight, moving from, you know, horse, horse-drawn carriage to diesel to petrol to unleaded petrol to electric yeah. to, you know, all these things take generations, don't they? We yeah. look back and we think, how the hell did we ever, you know, have, have diesel? How the hell did we ever have lead in our petrol killing, you know, driving yeah. crazy? But we don't really have that excuse anymore here in London. You know, obviously... You know, you're traveling around the world reporting on air pollution. You're you're not going to be surprised to learn that London's air quality is better than you know Delhi's or better than Beijing's. Of course it is, but you know why is London's air quality worse than New York's? Those two. Why is the UK's worse than America's air? You know, it shouldn't be. London and New York are absolutely pure cities in in every way so i don't think we have the excuse of you know no, this is just going right. to take time we yeah. we shouldn't be in this situation in it's london political will in. isn't it and finding the resources Absolutely. and lo and behold the magic money tree has appeared hasn't it i mean it, yes. it wasn't, wasn't there during the recession and uh, but all of a sudden it, it's appeared so needs must right we, we could fix thing. this if we if we wanted to if the will and the desire is there yeah. to, to do so yeah but it's not sexy is it I guess not, but you know it's. But you're it's making a, it so. <laughs> but it's it's affecting all of us every single day. Yeah, but like we said, it's not something we yeah. see until we're affected by you know asthma Absolutely. or I don't know yeah. dementia. Yeah. Incidentally, I'm, I'm I'm talking next week or a couple of weeks time to um, uh, a lady called Julie Montague, who's a mm -hmm. Jules Montague specialist and um, professor of uh, uh, early onset of dementia. So it'll be interesting to see what what she says about yeah. uh, the effects of pollution. Mm -hmm. I'm sure she'll come up with the same conclusion as you have. Yeah. So, um, what's next for you? I mean, how's the book gone? First of all, I mean, it, it looks like it's been a, a, a success. It's been re very well yeah. received from all everything I've read. And you got Arnold Schwarzenegger to. to I did. Yeah, I got to meet him. Yeah. An, an urgent essential read. What was that like? Yeah. Oh, that was fun. I went to his. Um, he does a, an annual climate summit in Vienna. Um, I went there last year, and I. I participated in one of the panels that they were doing. Um, but he's very, um, he actually did a lot on on clean air and climate change when he was governor of California. State of California is a big leader in both of those areas. And he's really remained very involved since he left office, which is, I think, something like 10 years ago now. Mm -hmm. um, and he really, it was so, it was fun to meet him. He really relates to air pollution, I think, partly because he thinks it's a way to help engage people in the, the climate um, issue, you know, with, that we need to talk to people about health rather than talking about kind of these abstractions in, in the atmosphere. Um, he's very passionate about it. Yeah. Excellent. Terminator. So, it was fun. The, the, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the book's gone well. I mean, you, yeah. it's been a success. Yeah. You got a follow up? Uh, yeah, I hope so. I, I was getting started on a new project and then it kind of got sidetracked by COVID. You know, everything's sort of up in the air now. And I don't know, it seems like air pollution won't let go of me. Once you write, once you write a book about something, people keep coming to you and sort of wanting you to write more about it, talk so about what's it. The follow up. Don't, don't you don't have to give any. Uh... So it's to do with plastic. Okay. Yeah, and and the okay. plastic industry. Yes. Um, we'll see. I don't know if it's going to happen though. 
All right. Okay. We had a, a guest on the show, um, one of the CEOs of a startup called New Oceans. Yeah. Um, who are recycling flip flops, which oh, uh, cool. mil- millions of flip flops, which end up well, in the ocean. The the thing I'm interested in increasingly, and you know, this applies to air pollution, it applies to climate, it applies to plastic. I I think that our whole conversation about these issues is really very heavily skewed in the wrong way. It's skewed towards questions of individual responsibility. You know, what can you do? How can you use less plastic in your life? Or how can you pollute less or whatever? And what we're not talking about is corporate and political responsibility. You know, we're not talking about, for example, Volkswagen or ExxonMobil or Shell, these huge companies and that are, you know, spending tremendous amounts of money to keep us in this very dirty status quo you know, and a hotter, dirtier, less healthy future. And incidentally, they're really trying to exploit the kind of the cover of, of COVID and the pandemic to win additional favor. So I'm trying to look at, at more at the, the corporate and political responsibility rather than individual responsibility. Yeah, well, more more power to you. It's such yeah. an important topic. So uh, yeah, keep, up the good, keep up the good work. It was, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the book. I always read books if i've got a guest on who's written <laughs> written a book and i must say a little bit of trepidation because i thought oh i hope it's not full of uh, you know stats and figures and and whilst there is some of that as i say it is primarily a storytelling book from around the world well it is it has got hope there is hope there and it, it's a thoroughly good book and i really recommend it it's called choked the air, the age of air pollution and the fight for a cleaner future by beth gardner i thoroughly recommend everybody to go and get it and we'll give the uh, the link to that shortly well, so thanks before Glad you pleasure. enjoyed it yeah no i absolutely did before we wrap up I ask all my guests to mention one or two places in London that are particularly special to them or personal to them for whatever reason, yeah. and not not necessarily Buckingham Palace or the London Eye, but something which is personal to you. And yeah. being an American, living living in London for the past twenty years, I'd be very interested to see what you've come up with. Yeah, well, I you know I think one of my favorite things about London, especially because I lived in New York before is is how much greener it is here you know and and the parks and the the open space that you have access to in a way that you know New York is just such a more densely populated place um and i i'm really lucky because where we live i i'm in Finsbury Park north london and um my my house backs onto something called the Parkland Walk which is a a wonderful um you know it's a like a disused train line um, and it goes from Finsbury Park all the way up to Muswell Hill. I think it's about four miles, but it's it's divided into two um, segments. So my segment is about um, I think it's about two miles long, and it's I I, I um, when my daughter was in primary school walked back and forth every day taking her to school on the Parkland Walk. It's an escape from pollution. It's an escape from, oh, you know. Nice. I've, ri- I've written it down. That's the, excellent. The city streets. It's, it's a, you know, you feel a little bit like you're, you've got a little bit of, of country and um, quiet and, uh, you know, that sort of peacefulness, right? Right yeah, in the middle no, there's, of a, there's loads of a lovely pretty gritty green, neighborhood. Yeah. Green space. In fact, when you were saying you do yeah. cycling as during yeah. lockdown, my wife, yeah. My wife and I sounds very royal. My wife and I, we we go for uh, about an hour long walk every day around an yeah. open space here called Larendine, which is absolutely oh, yeah. beautiful. It's just in effect seven seven fields. Yeah, but it takes you an hour to get round. And having walked round yeah. since March, 
you see yeah. the changes of the seasons and all yeah. the wildlife and the birds and it, it's been lovely so yeah. london is amazing for green green space yeah the parkland walk is one that's really special parkland to walk right we've got yeah. that down what's yeah. your next one well my other one is more more central it's not buckingham palace though um, the South Bank has always been my favorite. My place. favorite. Not not the the arts complex itself, although I love that. But I just think that that stretch of the river is such. I just feel that that energy, the views yeah. of you know, you see the yeah. all the bridges and the, the buses, the buses back and forth over the river. I, I love being so close to the water. This great when shops I, I, there. If anyone too. ever asks me one of my favorite yeah. places in London, I nearly always yeah. say South Bank. Just go down the South me too. Bank. The book market. Wander around the booksellers there, yeah. you know, the yeah. buskers and a lovely just, day, the view over yeah. the bridges. I just it's feel stunning. like I'm in the, in the heart of London when I'm, yeah. I'm there. Yeah. I totally agree. Well, they're, they're, they're two cracking places. Yeah. We've had the South Bank before, but I'm happy to take it again. All right. Not had the park, not had the park and walk before, so that's going. Yeah, to they've got a website. You can link to it. Yeah. Oh, we'll, yeah. we'll link to Friend, that as well. Friends of the Parkland Walk. Fantastic. Talking of links and how to find things, how can people get in touch with you and find you? Social media, websites, etc. Um, yeah, my website is bethgardiner.com, B-E-T-H-G-A-R-D-I-N-E-R.com. And I'm on Twitter, Gardner underscore Beth. Fantastic. And your book can be found on Amazon, Waterstones, and all good booksellers. And your your local independent bookstore. Yeah, and we'll say it Even again. Even better. It's called, yeah. <laughs> it's called Choked, The Age of Air Pollution and the Fight for a Cleaner Future. Really, really recommend the book. It's well worth it. It's not a difficult read. Thoroughly enjoyable. As has been our chat today, Beth. It's been a pleasure to have you on the, uh, the podcast. Likewise. Thank you ever so much. Thank you for your time. And sorry about the... Uh, the technical hiccup to start with. Oh, that's all right. We worked it out. It was great to talk to you. Thank you for having me on. That's an absolute pleasure. I absolutely love creating your London legacy for you. And the feedback and testimonials are awesome. But as it grows, so it consumes more and more resources. So I've joined forces with Patreon, a really cool place where you can show your love and support from just as little as $2 a month as a silver Londoner right up to $300 per month where you get the crown jewels. Each level of subscription opens up a host of exclusive extra goodies, events, bonus shows and sponsorship opportunities only available via, via Patreon. I do hope you will continue to support what we're doing here and I'm so grateful for whatever you feel able to give. So please head over to www.patreon.com forward slash your London legacy. That's www.patreon.com patreon.com forward slash your London legacy.